Well, most of us have probably never heard of Christian Herder. He was a governor of the state of Massachusetts in the 1950s and later went on to become the U.S. Secretary of State. One day while running hard for re-election, going out trying to get as many votes as he could, and skipping lunch, he came to a church barbecue. And he got in line, took his plate, and the woman who was serving the food put a piece of chicken on his plate. And he stopped and he said, I'm sorry, is there, another, is there a way I can get another piece of chicken? And she looked and said, I'm sorry, I was told only one per person. He said, yeah, but I, I'm really, really hungry. She said, sorry, one per customer, and moved to the next person. Now, he was a very unassuming, humble man, but he decided, you know, I'm so hungry, I'm going to throw my weight around a little bit. And so he said to her, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And she said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. <laughs> Move along, mister. Human authority is an interesting thing. It's usually not easily attained. It can be easily lost. And authority in one area doesn't guarantee you have authority in all areas. So you could be the governor of the state, but not have authority over the chicken lady. <laughs> Divine authority, the authority of God, of course, is a very different thing. God has authority over everything. And as God, Jesus had total authority over circumstances, over people, and over nature while he walked the earth. But I think one of the interesting things is, is that Jesus didn't exercise his authority in ways that we would expect. Can you imagine if you and I had the authority of Jesus? I'm afraid there would be a wake of injured people behind us. Right? If you're going to the mall during Christmas time and you're trying to find somewhere to park and somebody cuts right in front of you, oh, take my parking space. How about a little fire from heaven? Boom! Because that's the sound that fire from heaven makes. You imagine doing that? I, I unfortunately can't imagine doing that. But Jesus never used his authority in a selfish way. He only used it to serve and to obey his heavenly Father. And our passage this morning actually highlights the authority of Jesus. Specifically, Jesus' authority over sickness, over Satan, and as the Savior of the world, as the Son of God. Now, when you're studying God's Word, there's a lot of Scripture that's actually very easy to apply because there are imperatives or commands in those passages, and they tell you what to do. They tell you how to apply the passage, at least in part. You are to repent. You are to forgive. You are to love. You are to serve in some way. Well, our passage this morning doesn't actually have any commands in it. It simply tells us what Jesus did, rather simply, and then tells us a little bit about why he did it. But passages like this, actually, still have a great deal that we can apply. Some very, very important principles. There are two in particular, I think, that are important for us to apply from our text this morning. And the first one is this, that I believe that studying this passage, reading about what Jesus did and, and what it meant and why he did it, it should deepen our worship of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Really, all of Scripture should do that. As we understand it, it will deepen our worship of God. And we read about Jesus and we understand more about who he is and his power and his compassion and his love and his patience and his grace and his mercy, but his holiness, his hatred for sin, his opposition to the evil one. 
And we realize he is worthy of our worship, far more than we even realized. And so we, we, we study God's word, asking our Heavenly Father to help us to see how worthy he is of worship. But secondly, it should increase our confidence that Jesus is worthy of our trust. Even as followers of Jesus, one of the problems that we have at times is we're faced with a decision. And sometimes we waver and wonder, well, which, which way is better? The Lord's way, I know in my head that seems better, but in my heart, I feel like this is the better way to go. And it's really fundamentally because at the end of the day, we don't trust him. We don't trust him enough. But seeing Jesus interact with people through the gospel, seeing what he does, seeing him submit himself to the Father, we, our confidence should be increased in him. We see in him that he is worthy of our trust. And that's my prayer this morning, that those two things, a deepened sense of worship of the Lord and a growing confidence in Jesus will be one of, two of the results of our time this morning. So I want to take a look at our passage. It's found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Uh, please follow along with us on your phone or tablet. If you want, the blue Bible in front of you uh, has it on page 813. It's great just to follow along. And I know that it's just been read, but I think it's important for us to, to keep it in mind again. So I want to read it uh, a second time here. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So the first area of authority of Jesus that we see is that Jesus' authority over sickness. Jesus' authority over sickness. Now this is the third miracle that Matthew records in this chapter, and then the third outcast that Jesus healed. The first, you'll recall, is the man with leprosy. The second was the servant of the Roman centurion, and now Peter's mother-in-law, a woman. And although a woman, a Jewish woman in particular, wouldn't have been quite the outcast that a leper or a Gentile centurion would have been, still women were marginalized in various circles uh, in Jesus' day, and still, still today, sadly. But Jesus is telling us here who the kingdom is for. The kingdom of God isn't for the powerful and the privileged. It's for anyone and everyone who come humbly to Jesus with their need. So I want to focus on Jesus this morning. So what I need to do, I think, is to cover a couple of concerns that this passage may have raised for some of us. The first one is this. The passage tells us that Jesus went into Peter's house where his mother-in-law lived with him. She was lying sick, and he healed her. Was Peter happy about this? She was, after all, his mother-in-law, right? We have to ask the question, was Peter happy? Tragically, the text actually doesn't say. But my mother-in-law lives with us about half the time, and I would say that if she was sick and Jesus healed her, I would be happy. So this morning, we're going to assume that Peter was at least as godly as I am, and that he was happy that Jesus healed his mother-in-law. For some of you, that may be a bigger assumption than for others, but we're going to go with that this morning. The second concern is some of you heard, when I read the passage, that immediately after being healed, Peter's mother-in-law got up to serve Jesus and the, and the disciples, probably served them a meal. And you thought to yourself, 
<laughs> well, of course she did. Of course she got up to serve because it would have killed the disciples to make a pot of coffee or to set the table, right? I mean, they're far too busy sitting there waiting for the woman who's on her deathbed to get healed so that they can eat. I feel you. I understand that. We're going to leave the disciples uh, out of it. I, I'm not here to defend them. I think they'll be defending themselves throughout all eternity. But uh, this passage does speak very well of her, and it speaks very well of Jesus. So when Jesus entered Peter's house, and just interestingly enough, they think they have identified Peter's house, archaeologists. And so you can, you can look that up sometime if you want. He was told that Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. And according to uh, a number of scholars, they believe that it was probably malaria because that was prevalent in that area uh, in Jesus' time. Some of you have suffered from malaria and know just how nasty it is. Malaria is a disease that's caused by a parasite transmitted by the bite of an infected mosquito. Even today, it kills an estimated 660,000 people around the world. It is nasty. Some of the symptoms include severe shaking, chills, high fever, and sweating. May also include a headache, vomiting, and diarrhea. If properly treated, it currently takes about two weeks to be cured. Without proper treatment, the symptoms can re return periodically over a period of years if it doesn't kill you. With Jesus standing next to you, you can expect complete healing in about half a second. A full second, maybe, at max. And so as you reflect on this, this very simple healing story about Peter's mother-in-law, I think there are, there are a few things that we can draw from this that demonstrate the authority of Jesus' healing. The first one is this. It's personal. Jesus' healing was personal. And that's going to show up right now. What do I mean by personal? Jesus touched her. Matthew's already made the point that he doesn't have to touch anyone. He doesn't have to even be there. He can heal a centurion's servant from a distance. He can heal anyone from a distance. But Jesus wasn't just interested in healing her. He wanted her to know that he was healing her. So he touched her. It was personal. It wasn't a force. It was Jesus, and it demonstrated his authority. The second way it demonstrated it is Jesus was fearless. Sometimes we don't think about that, but if you go into a hospital and you're visiting someone who's, who's sick, sometimes you have to wear all this uh, clothing in order to protect the patient and sometimes to protect yourself. Well, Jesus didn't have to put any of that on. He was completely unafraid because malaria and cancer and leprosy, they had no authority over Jesus. Jesus has complete authority over them. And so he could heal completely without fear. Next, it was immediate. That's actually what Luke says, Luke chapter 4, it's a parallel passage, that she immediately got up and began to serve them. There was no recovery time. It wasn't he touched her and said, okay, in a couple weeks you should start feeling better. It was immediate. And then lastly, related to that is it was complete. She was completely healed. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've been, uh, I've gotten over something, but I didn't feel like I could actually get out of bed. I've told Carme, I needed a few more hours to lay on the couch and watch a few more movies or something until I could feel really, really good and then actually do something around the house, right? The, the, the complete healing is this, that Jesus not only healed her, but her strength was returned. And so she got right up and she began to serve. 
Later on in verse 16 of our passage, it says that Jesus healed all who were sick. Again, very understated. Jesus didn't, didn't just heal the easy cases, you know, like coughs and the sniffles. He could heal anybody of anything at any time. That's authority over sickness. That's the authority that Jesus represented. And that's what all these descriptions point to. Jesus had complete authority and has over the human body. Jesus knows every cell. He knows every blood vessel, every chromosome. He has authority to create, to recreate, to restore blind eyes, to make the lame walk, the deaf to hear, to raise the dead. He can do it all with a word or with a touch. And the truth is that you and I, we don't have anywhere near that kind of authority. We're really helpless. When someone is sick, the best that we can do is look for medicine or remedies that are only available because of what God has put in the earth. But we're, we're powerless to cure anyone. And yet Jesus can do it all. So I want, I want you to imagine with me for a minute what it would have been like living in Jesus' day without the benefits of modern medicine. Sickness and death would have been all around you. And children and the elderly would have died from diseases that are now easily cured by the right medicine. Imagine the fear of illness. The reality that some of these things will come about and there, there is no cure. The hopelessness around you. Imagine one of your loved ones begins to develop a fever and you wonder, is this a death sentence? Will they ever recover from this? And now imagine what it would be like if your entire village, everyone who was sick, went to see this man, Jesus, and he cured everyone. Imagine the difference that would make in your village. You're walking down the street and you're, you're used to seeing this lame man beg. And now he's running a small business. You see what I did there? He was lame and now he's running a small business. That's exegesis. Or the man that Jesus gave his sight back to, now he's selling sunglasses. Okay, I'll stop. But imagine what that would be like. You're used to seeing sickness. You're used to seeing death around you. And all of a sudden, your village is healthy. And you know it was because of Jesus. What a powerful testimony that would be. This, Moody Church, this is your Savior. This is your God. This is who we worship. The one who has complete authority over sickness. The one who is worthy of our sickness, of our worship, because he has that authority because he is God. And I think now for many of us, the, the question we would naturally ask is this, if Jesus can heal all sickness, and obviously that's the clear testimony of Scripture, then why doesn't he do it now? Why not eliminate sickness? Why not eliminate disease now and show his love and his power? And I think that's an excellent question. I think actually there are many reasons that we could give from God's word that would help us to understand why he doesn't do that right now. There are two that I want to mention this morning I think are very important. The first is this. In God's mercy, he does not shield us from the consequences of sin or we would sin far more. I think you and I have done more than enough to give evidence that we would choose sin over obeying God for the passing pleasure of sin even though we know the consequences might be might be negative, might be bad. The consequences of sin, as horrible as they are, 
are nothing compared to the consequences of sin if they are not forgiven. We will spend an eternity apart from God in hell. The consequences of sin serve the same function that pain does in our lives. Right? If you touch something that's hot, your hand instinctively draws back so that you don't do further damage to yourself. And I think in God's mercy, he allows us to experience the consequences of sin so we'll realize this is nothing to be played with. The world is full of horrible, horrible consequences of sin. But there is something far worse awaiting us if we do not repent of our sin, if it is not forgiven. Second, these healings are temporary because they point to the permanent healing in God's kingdom. Every one of these people eventually got sick again and died. Lazarus got to die twice. Jesus' purpose wasn't to eliminate all sickness and disease in this life, but in the life to come. And these healings point to Jesus. They're designed to draw us to him, not to draw us to the benefits that he brings without knowing him. And I think in God's mercy, he shows us those two things. Rightly understood, God intends these healings to bring us great hope, even in the midst, as some of you are experiencing, serious illness, chronic pain, because our suffering is temporary. One day we will be healed, completely healed. The great healer will one day take away all sickness and pain. We hope in him. And if in this life Jesus does not, with a word, take away your sickness or your disease, then he gives you another word. And that word is, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And he speaks that to you personally. The second area of Jesus' authority we see is Jesus' authority over Satan. After seminary, I spent uh, about a year in Nigeria, West Africa, teaching at a Bible college. It was really an amazing experience. And I, I really appreciated the love and the provision of God there more than ever before. Nigeria is full of wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to encourage you to pray for them when Nigeria uh, comes to your mind because many of them are experiencing persecution for their faith. But one night I was in bed, and I don't know if I was actually dreaming or, or half awake, but I felt like I was being pulled out of my bed by something or someone that I couldn't see, but I could just feel. I could sense it. And I was terrified. And I remember it pulling me, and I'm pulling back, and I was crossing my arms over my chest just as tightly as I possibly could, trying not to get pulled out of my bed and to where I didn't know. And, and as it looked like I was going to lose, I just remember crying out, Jesus, help me! Jesus, help me! And in a moment, it was gone. Whatever it was that was pulling me out of bed immediately disappeared. And I felt this overwhelming sense of relief. And I knew that Jesus had saved me. I knew that he had rescued me. Jesus has authority over the evil one. Some of you have similar stories to tell. I remember that when I was in seminary, they would always say, well, these kinds of things, spiritual warfare, they... We hear more about them on the mission field than we do in the United States. And so I was on the mission field, and I thought, I'm going to ask. And so I went to my class the next day, and I asked my students. I told them what happened to me, and I said, well, how many of you have experienced something similar? And virtually every hand in the, in the classroom was raised. And we spent a lot of time talking about that and what it meant and how God has provided for us. 
Many, maybe, maybe even most of us in this room have not had an encounter with the, de the demonic that will stay with us like that or will even convince us that the devil and his demons are real. But they are. The Bible is very clear about this. It says it over and over again so that we will be prepared. And one of the best known passages is found in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. There's actually a second passage in 1 Peter that reminds us that we have an enemy who's seeking to oppose us. And Peter reminds us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. And that's what we are called to do. If, you only, if your only experience with the demonic is from TV shows or the movies— then you may be tempted to believe that this is all nonsense, but it's not. And the people in Jesus' day, whether they believed in Christ or not, they knew that it was true. They understood it all too well. And you see it in Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels. Look just at verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. They were very familiar with this kind of life. And when Mark and Luke mention in their accounts of this same story, they mention that it was the Sabbath, which is why it was evening when people brought these sick and demon-possessed people to Jesus. They didn't want to violate the Sabbath, and so they needed to wait. And you know, if you understand it, you realize that alone is a tragedy. There were people, likely children as well, that were being tormented by the evil one, that were dying and suffering under various diseases. But because of the man-made rules of religious leaders in order to look holy, they were prevented from receiving God's help. It is a testament to the foolishness and the arrogance of believing that we can come to God on our terms rather than humbly coming to him on his terms, which is coming to him through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the people of Capernaum brought those being oppressed by demons to Jesus, believing that he could help them. They'd probably already heard that earlier that day he'd cast a demon out of a man in the synagogue. And so they came believing that Jesus could help them. And we don't know how many they brought. They might have brought a half a dozen. They might, might have brought a couple hundred. And so what does Jesus do? Matthew says simply, he cast out the spirits with a word. Now when I read that, I thought, you know, Matthew sure is a master of understatement, isn't he? This is how he describes these miracles. He cast out the spirits with a word. And I'm thinking, nothing more to say there, Matt? That's it? Just another day at the office for Jesus? I mean, that's not the way you and I do things, right? If you and I do things that are somewhat impressive, don't we want to let people know about that? Don't we usually make a little bit bigger of a deal than they are? I mean, I don't know if you're into football, but there was a, uh, I was recently watching a preseason football game. And one of the things that you find in, in a lot of sports, football maybe in particular, is that 
a team could be losing by 20 points, and somebody could make a decent play, and they will proceed to self-congratulate by doing some routine that looks like they're auditioning for Dancing with the Stars. They've got some move down, and I'm sitting there watching, I'm going, dude, your team stinks. You're down by 20 points. You have no chance in this game. You made one nice play. Stop dancing. Now. Don't make me come on the field. <laughs> That's not what Jesus does. What's amazing is that Jesus is, Matthew is describing this incredible miracle, or really a series of miracles, because there were multiple people, many people. He describes it so briefly. Now, why does he do that? I think he does it for the same reason. It emphasizes the authority of Jesus. You might say that in some sense it was no big deal for Jesus. It was another day at the office. He has complete authority over Satan and over his demons. All that was needed was a word, a word spoken from Jesus who created the universe with a word. That's a powerful word. That's the word you and I seek in his word, when we read God's word and we're looking for the Lord to speak to us, all it took was a word. Every single problem you and I have, whether it's related to sickness or Satan or whatever, Jesus can address in a word. That's all it takes. The demons were defeated. Their victims were set free. Amazing. This, again, is our God. This is our Savior. And Jesus' authority over Satan wasn't lost on these people. After healing the man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit earlier in the day, this is how the people responded in Luke 4, 36. He says, They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. They recognize that. There is power in Jesus' name. Satan wants to kill and destroy, but Jesus came to bring us life. There is a spiritual realm, though unseen, is real. It is not all good. It is not all benevolent. And yet people foolishly play with it, and they seek it through occultism and similar things. And so I want to encourage you, fathers and mothers, pray for your children. Read God's word to them. Read it to one another. We must not be unaware of the schemes of our enemy. I think it's far more likely that we underestimate his attacks on our families and in our own lives than if we look for him under every rock. We must be wise. And we must keep in mind that the devil is a liar. He is an accuser and a perverter of God's good gifts. He doesn't create. He only perverts. And so don't let him discourage you or deceive you or defeat you. The Bible says, Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Satan has no power over God's people. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus has authority over sickness. Jesus has authority over Satan. Matthew and the other gospel writers are making that clear, which means that if we're following closely, we understand this. Jesus has authority over you. And he has authority over me. And the final part of this passage helps us put things together to get a fuller picture of who Jesus is. And this third point, this third area, is that Jesus' authority is as Savior. Verse 17 says this, This was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Matthew tells us that Jesus' healing ministry is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. 
He quotes from Isaiah chapter 53. This chapter is one of the most important Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah because it so clearly lays out the suffering that Jesus endured and his sacrifice on our behalf and in our place. It is one of the so-called suffering servant sections of Isaiah. It's quoted seven times in the New Testament, including by Jesus himself, to refer to his ministry. I think it's worth reading it in its entirety. And while I read it on the screen, I'm going to ask you this. Just listen and focus on the ministry of Jesus and how this describes what he endured on our behalf. Isaiah writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Isn't that amazing? The Son of God, who has authority over all things, came to give his life. The one with all authority submitted himself first to God the Father, but then to those who opposed him and hated him, and ultimately killed him according to the plan of God. In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from this very chapter of Scripture, and the Lord sent Philip to him. And Acts 8.35 says this, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. There are so many implications of this passage 
and of Jesus' healing and deliverance ministry that ultimately culminated in why he came, to give his life for his people, to take their sin upon himself so that we could be reconciled to God. I want to quickly go through just five implications of Jesus' healing and deliverance ministry. We could spend so much more time on this. The first one is that it validated Jesus as the Messiah. His healing and deliverance ministry validated because he was the fulfillment of prophecy. Secondly, it demonstrated God's love and compassion. Again, this is the God that we serve, the God who's not indifferent to the pain that we endure. Most of the consequences that we experience are because of our own sin. It demonstrates God's love and his compassion. Third, it proves God's opposition to sin. God isn't sitting in heaven saying, you're on your own, you deserve this. He stands up against the devil and says, no, I am completely opposed to the devil and everything that he does. Fourthly, it reveals Jesus' authority, his complete authority over sickness, over Satan and as the Son of God. And finally, it foreshadows God's kingdom. This is a wonderful thing, right? We get a taste of what it means to be under the rule of God. Ultimately, this is what heaven is like. Free from sickness, free from death, free from illness, free from satanic oppression. The only reason there is sickness and sin and oppression and death is because of sin. These are all symptoms of the greater problem, our rebellion against God. And Jesus didn't come to address that problem. He came and he solved that problem. He solved that problem for everyone who places his faith in Jesus. He came to take away sin and disease, to free people from Satan's oppression, to make it crystal clear that Isaiah 53 has been fulfilled. And my friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. As Pastor Ed said a few weeks ago, you and I are lepers. You and I are outcasts apart from Jesus. None of us deserve to be healed. We have gone astray, every one of us. We need Jesus' healing. We need to be rescued, and that's why he came, to rescue all who will call upon his name. Many of you this morning here already have. Undoubtedly, some of you have not. There were people, righteous people in Jesus' day, who witnessed firsthand the miracles that he did, and they refused to believe. Do not be like them. There are others who don't see their need. They're blind but think they see. They're deaf but think they hear. They're lame but think they walk. And so they refuse to come to the one who could give them sight and restore their healing, their hearing, and help them to walk. Jesus has authority over sickness and Satan. As the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, he has authority over you and me. Come to him this morning with any burden you have, the burden to be saved, or some other burden that is weighing you down. Come to Jesus this morning. Bring that burden. He not only has the authority to address it, he has the heart. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for recording in your holy word what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you came with all authority but submitted yourself to the Father, and you came to serve, not to be served. 
and you came to save all those who trust in you. And I pray that that is exactly how we would respond, to trust in you. Whether we are coming to you by faith for the first time or laying a burden at your feet asking for your help, we need your word, your word of healing, your word of hope, even your word that your grace is sufficient for us. Do that, we pray, Father. We desperately need it. And we desire to glorify you with our response. In Christ's name, amen.